Well, good evening, good evening. Hey, we got a couple of birthdays. I just want to say a shout out for Chris House had a birthday yesterday. Come on, can you give it up for Chris? He got his card already, but Jason Kearney, I don't know if he's in here. He's one of our elders. He's probably working. So, but this is for Jason. So let's, we can give it up for Jason, even though he's not here. And is, that, is Amy in here? Amy's, all right, I'm going to give you this for him. Don't, don't open the card and take the gift out because we're going to tell him. All right, all right. Happy birthday, Jason. Give him some love on Facebook tomorrow. Well, this is the wrap-up of this series that we have been in since the first weekend in October in the crowd. If you're visiting uh, for, for uh, out of town tonight, if something that we share uh, piques your interest or God just uh, tugs on your heart and you want to learn more about uh, this series, it, it began uh, Saturday, October 6th. I'm not going to, uh, the, the, the text up there, Luke chapter 8, is the story that we kind of unpack that set this series off. Again, that's on Saturday, October 6th. You can find that message as well. I'm excited too about the series that's coming up for Christmas. Uh, starting next weekend, Pastor Justin and I, he's our campus pastor over in Suffolk. We're going to be doing a series together on the Holy Spirit. And, and we're excited about the series because so, so much of Christmas focuses on Jesus, as well it should, because it's celebrating the birth of Christ. But I think sometimes we forget that the birth of Christ was also the birthing of the Holy Spirit coming back into the world in a way that the Spirit of God. God had not been in, in the world since the Garden of Eden, and so we're going to be doing that series together. We're going to switch campuses one of those weekends. I'll be in Suffolk, and then Pastor Justin will be here, and so we're excited about that series that is coming up uh, that's going to take us all the way into uh, 2019. If you've been with us most Saturdays, you know that we've kind of waded into this each message each week by telling a story in the Bible of somebody who overcame that fear of being conspicuous to kind of prepare our hearts for the moment of responses that come in this service. And so uh, for the sake of time tonight, and because the text that I want to unpack in Matthew 25 really has an opportunity for three responses, I'm going to kind of skip over that. But I, I do just, in a moment of preparing your hearts, just to reflect on the idea that much of Jesus' teachings focused on social norms. And how those social norms so many times kept people from responding to their spiritual hunger. And a lot of times those social norms involved religious practices. So it might be that you're here tonight and it's just like it was 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day that you've come into this moment with some ideas about religious practices. It could be that you've come into this moment with some ideas about how church should be and what church should feel like. And maybe already, even though we're just a little more than halfway through, you're like, you don't have to talk to me about this being different. It's already different. But what I would say to you is don't let the feeling of it being different keep you from re receiving from Christ what he wants to give to you tonight. So many of the remarkable stories that we find in Scripture, which we've been digging into in this entire series, are people who were willing to step outside of, for them, what were norms that they had been taught their entire life. Don't let social norms, especially social norms that involve religious practices, keep you from responding to the spiritual hunger that's in your heart. 
And you might say, well, Fred, how am I going to know when that is? I'm, and what I would say to you is you're going to know because this is the nature of God and the power of the Holy Spirit is that his voice is indistinguishable. And if there is a point in this service where there is an opportunity to respond and you feel a tugging at your heart, what I would say to you is give yourself to that moment and take a chance on Christ. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 25, and just to kind of get our thoughts moving in the right direction, we like a little, if you're visiting with us, we like a little participation here at the City Life Church. So, so somebody who had an experience over Thanksgiving with a family member that frustrated you, right? <laughs> now, we record this, so don't use any names. And I'll be careful just to point to you and not say your name, right? In case your family members listen to the podcast, right? I'm just, it could be funny. It, it could be a frustration, but just something that happened, right? When you get all these people together, like what Pastor Dave was talking about in the worship wrap-up, it was so good. And, and, but we also know that sometimes getting all those people together, it's putting people in a room and, and you leave that going, praise the Lord, I only have to do that once a year, right? So any experiences from this holiday that you, from Thanksgiving, you could say was, a frustration, an irritation. Any takers? Any takers? All right. In the back, Jay? No, it's Jamal? No, cousin took the last piece. All right, cousin takes the last piece of turkey, but the only thing they brought to the meal was a bag of ice. I feel, all right, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. Somebody else. I saw another hand pop up. Somebody else? Anybody? Family members show up. They live in the home, and they, but they come back to eat all of the sides. Come back to eat all of the yeah. So like they show up for the, you mean, you're talking about after Thanksgiving, they come back for leftovers later. All right, okay, all right, I, I hear you. Somebody else, anybody over here? Getting up from the table while people are still eating. Yeah, getting up from the table, clearing their dish while you're still, can, you can see it on your face, you can feel it right now. I know, right? There's, there's frustration, somebody else. Somebody else? Anybody? Anybody else? Wait, what? Okay, all right. Not getting dressed for Thanksgiving, but I have a confession. This was the first year that we hosted, and I ate Thanksgiving meal in my sweatsuit. So I'm just, I was that violator. I'm so sorry. I, I did get dressed up for the family picture, though. But as soon as the family picture was over, I was like, this is at our house. The hoodie and the sweatpants are coming out. Who, who was that hand over here? See what he's doing here, right? Husbands, take notice, right? This, right all right. And the offense was this family member slept through the entire meal. Oh, no. Well, she was only three. Okay, all right, all right, all right. All right, slept through the entire meal. So I did have a, a moment with one of my nephews where during the meal, he began to make a turkey sandwich with the food that was on the plate. And I had to say, hey, you, you can't do that. You can't do that to at least 11 o'clock at night. You're doing a leftover procedure during the actual Thanksgiving meal. We got to raise them right. They got to learn. If they don't learn from us, who are they going to learn from? My funniest Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving moment in the name of the family will remain anonymous for the sake of dignity and then my relationship with them is uh, one of my nephews at the table was just, he, he was eating, it was like it was a race. Right? And, 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 and he, it's, like he, it's like he couldn't get it down fast enough. We we're like, are you, are you, are you all right? You seem like you're putting that stuff away. And, and he shook his head. He says, no, you don't understand what it's like in my house. 
My mom has been watching so many YouTube videos about healthy eating, it's ruining my life. He's in fifth grade. He's in fifth grade. He's like, I'm never going to eat like this again until next year I come to Aunt Vanessa. So I feel you. We're going to be sending him care packages anonymously through the mail. Candy and soda. Candy and soda. I, I share that with you because that's what Matthew 25 is all about. Start to finish. Is that there's going to be a family gathering in heaven. We're all invited. It's your choice as to whether or not you're going to go. And Matthew 25 is about the culture of the family of God and things that offend him. It's like he's sending us some of the rules in advance. And, and he's saying to us, when we gather together for eternity, let me share with you, when you come to my house, and we're going to be there forever, let me give you some insight into some things that are offensive to my heart so you can be ready when you come. Matthew 25 has three separate parts. The first two are parables. The last one is not a parable. Some of you have grown up in the church and have, have learned this as three parables. In fact, you, maybe you've referred to the parable of the sheep and the goats, but there's not a third parable. The third part, which we're going to get to tonight, is actually Jesus giving us insight into something that's going to happen in the future. There's two parables, and then there's insight, a foretelling of the tomorrows. It's a great reminder that there are cultural divides that exist between our world and 2,000 years ago and that sometimes it makes understanding these parables difficult. Matthew 25 reminds us that each parable has a central theme and that when we begin to understand that theme, it begins to unlock the understanding that's in there for us. And all three... The two parables and the insight remind us that there are eternal consequences to our actions. But when our relationship with God is right, everything else tends to fall into place. So let's start with the first one. It's the parable of the bridesmaids. I'm going to just read 1 to 13. I'm not going to read all of it for the sake of time. But let me just read enough just to set it up for us to explore. It says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps. But the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. And when the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming, come out. And meet him. Now all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. And the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of the oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. And again, if you were to continue reading, you would realize that by the time they got back, the door was closed when the bridegroom answered that they were not allowed in. Now, this is one of those stories that it's hard to follow a little bit because we think of weddings today and we kind of pr project that onto the past. But weddings 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day were really different. They were really different. For, for, for weddings, they would last for days on end, depending on the wealth of the family. And, and, and to get the 
the, the wedding started, sometimes it would begin as a celebration at the groom's house, and they would celebrate for days, and then at some point there was a processional. And the groom and the groomsmen and the family of the, the, of the, of the groom, they would, they would begin a processional until they got to the house of the bride. And then the party kept going. And there were certain ceremonies that were done at the bride's house. And then at some point, everybody joined in with the processional that had arrived. Now it's bigger because the bride's family and the bride's involved. And they begin to work their way back to the groom's family where the party continues. They would leave in the middle of the night. It would always be at a time when they would go back to the groom's house that it would be late into the evening so the lamps were important because there were no streetlights 2,000 years ago. And so the bridal party were responsible for making sure that there was going to be enough light for everybody to make their way safely back to the groom's house. So you've got some of these bridesmaids, they did... Just barely enough. They, they, they had just enough oil. They, they were fulfilling their responsibilities to a degree, but they weren't all in with the duties that had been assigned to them. It's a powerful image for us because in our lives as devoted followers of Christ, what Jesus is really saying to you and to me, you can go through the motions as a devoted follower of Christ, but the culture of the family of God is to be all in. And to not just do just barely enough to get by. It's an important distinction too to remember that when the processional would work their way back to the groom's house, that it was significant because that's where the bride was going to live for the rest of her life. That in Jesus' day, the tradition was that the son would build an addition onto his house. That's why in John 14, where Jesus says, I'm going to come back for you, there's, right, there's room for you in my father's house, the imagery of us being the bride of Christ. That's why he said that, because it was the tradition of the day. So when they were coming back, for some of you, right, who got married, just imagine that, that, you're, that you're, your wedding night, you're going back to your in-law's house, and that's your honeymoon, and that's where you're living for the rest of your life. Some of you are thinking, praise the Lord, it's 2,000 years later, and we have different traditions here. It's interesting that the relationships of Jesus' day were so central to their everyday life that, that even if you wanted to, you couldn't get away from them. And I think sometimes for many of us that the customs of our day and how the traditions are different, I think sometimes it gives us permission to walk away too easily from relationships that we should fight for. The culture of God's family is that doing just enough to get by, it offends him. It offends him. Because the nature of God is the ultimate overachiever. He doesn't do anything halfway. Everything he does is extraordinary. Just the creation of the world itself, if we were to have the time to dig around and gen the world that he created for us, it's one of beauty and passion and love. He could have just made it functional, but he didn't. 
He could have just made food nutritional, but he didn't. That's what my nephew's complaining about. He loves pleasure. The very first place in the world that's geographically identified is Eden. And Eden in Hebrew, it means pleasure. God created our capacity for pleasure. All the different ways that God could have saved the world, but he said, nope, I'm sending my son. He does everything over the top. It's the nature of who he is. And when he invites us to be a part of his family, he's inviting us to be a part of the culture of his family. And what he's saying to you and what he's saying to me is don't just do things halfway. You can do things just enough to get by, but ultimately you're going to be the one that misses out. That's the imagery for us of the bridesmaids that don't get to make it in for the rest of the party is that they're the ones that lose. They still found their way back to the groom's house. Everybody still got there. The sovereignty of God is not ultimately dependent upon us. All the things that he asks of us, does it make a contribution to his kingdom? It does, but if we don't do it, he finds another way. So ultimately the invitation is not for the contribution we make, but it's because of the joy that it gives us in doing it. For some of you tonight, this idea of doing just enough, it's kept you from making a vow of devotion to Christ. I know it was for me. For many years, I didn't make a vow of devotion to Christ until December of 1990. And it wasn't because I didn't understand what it meant. It's because I understood all too well what it meant. Because I knew that being a devoted follower of Christ from the example of my parents, it meant that you were all in. It wasn't about doing anything halfway. But for some of you here tonight, you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, but this sentiment is still all too present in your life. For some of you, you've made a vow of devotion to Christ and heaven is promised to you and you're gonna be at that feast for all eternity. You're on your way to God's house forever, but there's still just this little bit in your heart and life at times where you just wanna do enough to get by. Am I reading my Bible just enough to get by? Am I worshiping just enough to get by? Am I giving just enough to, am I serving just enough to get by? And that list just goes on and on. And so this is gonna be our first response moment. So in a minute, I'm just gonna, if, if this is you, if, you're, if you would be willing to say, and people have been standing every week, if this is your first time in this series, I know it might feel awkward, and what I would say to you is that you've gotta take a chance on trusting that if you feel a tug on your heart, that Christ is gonna meet you in a personal way. So in just a minute, when I begin to pray, I'm just going to invite you to stand. If you would say tonight, you would say tonight, Fred, I, this is part of me. In certain parts of my life, in certain parts of my faith and life and devotion to Christ, I do just enough to get by. As I begin to pray, you stand. And I just want to pray for you tonight. Father, I pray for people that are standing tonight who are struggling with this sentiment. Father, I thank you for the courage. I thank you for the courage of the people that are standing even now. And I pray, Father, that tonight is going to be a turning point for them. And just as it was 2,000 years ago, as people left this moment, Jesus, where you were teaching, their lives were different, and I pray that they would feel that same thing. I pray that when they get home tonight, even when they wake up tomorrow, there's going to be a new sense of motivation. There's going to be a new sense of passion. There's going to be a new sense of drive. That they're going to step into the culture of your family. That when there's an opportunity to walk something out that they understand as a part of their devotion to you, that something inside of them is going to be different. It's not going to be out of obligation. It's going to be out of desire. It's not going to be out of guilt. It's going to be out of passion.
and that for the rest of their days, they're going to look a lot more like you. The overachiever that you are when it comes to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. Come on, applaud for some courage. Applaud for some courage. Servants, let's talk about the servants. The parable of the servants. I'm going to pick up in verse 24. It says, then the servant with the one bag of silver. Many of you have grown up, this being called the parable of the talents, because talent was a measure of money. And, and so if you have a more modern translation here, we, we, we call it bags of silver. And, right? One was given five bags, one was given two, and one was given one. They were given resources that were commensurate to their abilities. So the one who was given five, right, when the master comes back, he's earned five more, now he's got ten. The master celebrates acknowledges, gives him more responsibility, he gets a promotion, the one who got two now has four, same thing happens. The one who has one, still only has one, he dug a hole in the ground and this is his excuse and he put the money there. So the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops, I didn't plant and gathered crops, I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank and at least I would have gotten some interest on it? Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they have been given, even more will be given to them and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And then listen to what it says in verse 30. Now throw this useless servant out into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's very, there's serious consequences connected to some of these teachings. How many, how many of you remember your first real job? I know, right? And with your first job, your first real boss. Yeah, I know. My first real job, I grew up in Verina, which is in Henrico County, just outside of Richmond. It is farm country. I was once a redneck. It is true. I dipped in between classes in high school. I was that guy. Oh yeah, uh-huh, it's true. On my job, I worked at a gas station, a little local family-owned gas station, after school and on Saturdays where I could chew tobacco to my heart's delight. I know, it's a scary image, isn't it? But that's just like, please, dear God, stop telling the story. Right, and if you're knowing chewing tobacco, you have to do something with that, right? And 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 my can was an oil can, and oil cans. This is how old I am. Oil cans in my day were like a big soup can. Anybody remember that? No, I'm the only old person here. All right, come on. Thank you, Dave Miskiel. Though they were these oil cans, and the way they get the oil out, you had a metal spout that had a spike on it, and you would stick it in there, and that's how you would pour the oil into a car. They've made progress with oil. But I worked at that gas station. My first boss was Pete Throckmorton. He's one of the hardest working people I've ever met in my life. And because he was so hard working, guess what it inspired me to do? It inspired me to work hard. It inspired me to show up early and stay late. It inspired me to give as good of customer service as I could in Verina with tobacco in my mouth while I was pumping gas, right? No, it inspired me to give good customer service. It inspired me to do well. It inspired me because he was a hard worker. 
The boss you have and the company you work for in many ways will determine your degree of productivity. In this story, we see that this worker, he has an excuse. He's saying, because you aren't everything that you should be, I'm free to not be everything I should be. And that's his reason. But what I love about the story is that the boss, in many ways, is saying to him, I'm not any of those things that you're accusing me of. And ultimately, you're responsible for your own mischaracterizations. See, there's a part of us as we're reading the story, at least it is for me, that where the boss would say, oh, I'm so, I didn't, re- I'm so sorry, right? I, I can see how if you thought that, then it would cause you to do that, everything's gonna be okay. It, it seems that the master's response to him is, is, is too harsh because once he understands, like where's the empathy here from the master? And we know in the parable, the master, right? Jesus is really speaking of the father in relation to us. And so it begs the question, how does this apply to you and to me? It it applies this way, that God says to you and he says to me, you're responsible for your own mischaracterizations of the Father. God has done everything possible for you to know exactly who he is. He's done every, he's perfect in all his ways. He's done everything possible for you to know that he's the perfect Father and that he deserves to be the boss of our life. And then if we have mischaracterizations of him, it's not because he's failed us, it's because we failed ourselves. Maybe you're here today and you've got some mischaracterizations of God. And maybe those mischaracterizations have kept you from making a vow of devotion to Christ. Or maybe for some of you, it's not kept you from making a vow of devotion to Christ, but it's held you back. Maybe you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, there's times in my life where I feel like God is unfair. Maybe if you were honest, you would say, Fred, there's times in my life where I feel like God has favorites and I'm never one of them. Maybe you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, there's times where I feel like God is distant, where he's not here with me when I need him to be. Or maybe you're here when you would, you would say sometimes it feels as though he's indifferent, that he's callous, that he sees my situation, he sees my suffering, he sees my pain, but yet he still chooses not to do anything. Maybe you see God as being angry. Maybe you see him as being out of touch. Maybe you see him as being permissive. Why isn't he doing something about these other people and the way that they're living? Why does he allow them to prosper When you read through the book of Psalms, you find that David wrestled with his own lack of understanding of who God was. As you read through the Psalms, what you're going to find is that just about everything on this list is a feeling that David himself struggled with at some point in who he believed God to be. We're not teaching tonight that you can never think these things about God. What we're saying is you can't stay there. 
At some point, you've got to take your experience and you've got to press it into the truth of God's word. You've got to press it into pursuing God's presence. You've got to bring it into community and then you've got to let the truth and the reality of who God is begin to speak to your circumstance and bring revelation. He might not change your circumstance, but what he will change, what he will alter, which is where you see every one of those Psalms. David always ends up in a place where he declares and proclaims the true nature of God, even though his situation is exactly the same as when he started. For some of you, it's kept you from your vow of devotion, but others, you're here tonight. Heaven is promised to you. You're on your way to heaven one day. But you've bought into some lies about who God is because of your situation. And so for you, as I begin to pray, I'm gonna invite you to stand. You, we've, been, we've been saying the same joke every, every week. You might stand for every one of these, right? Don't, don't let that keep you from not standing, right? If God's tugging in your heart, you stand every time he tugs. Father, I pray for people that are standing right now who are wrestling with a belief of something about you. Maybe one of those words, even on that list, as I read it, it began to tweak their heart. Father, I pray for people that are standing tonight that have some questions for you about who you are and what you're not doing. And I pray, Father, that in this coming week that you would begin to invade their world in such a way with your presence that they would begin to see you as the loving God that you are. That, Father, that you would begin through the power of your Holy Spirit, begin to whisper insight into their heart so that they can see and understand the situation that they're walking through. I pray that you would give them clarity of thought. I pray, Father, that you would give them faith to believe that no matter what their circumstance is saying to them, they're going to believe what they know to be true about your character. I pray, Father, that you would send people across their path, maybe even people they don't know, maybe even strangers, that are going to begin to speak things into their life that are exactly what they needed to hear. The person in the line, God, somebody is this, they're, they're going for a walk, that, that you're going to deposit a message in the heart of someone else and it's going to be delivered to them and they're going to know that they're known and loved. I pray, Father, that by this time next week that the power of who you are, the power of the revelation of your heart is going to be so real to them that it's going to be as though it's something tangible that they hold in their hands. And that that would become the filter that for the rest of their lives that they see every situation and circumstance through. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody said, amen. Come on, how about clapping for some courage? I've got one more I want to do. The final judgment. Some of you are like, just keep preaching, my family's still in town. <laughs> oh, you know who you are. Notice how this one starts differently. He says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, the other two start with the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated, or the kingdom of heaven is like unto, depending on your translation. See, the language shifts here, and the language shifts is because Jesus is trying to understand. He's moved out of parables, and now he's moved into prophetic insight. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in his presence. Now watch what happens here. In the, in the, in the parables, he's, he stayed within the metaphor of the illustration. But here he mixes it. He's talking about a king and a kingdom, but then he shifts to a shepherd and farm animals and then he goes back to a king and a kingdom and citizens. Why does he insert this, this comparison So he will be gathered in his presence. He will separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep at the right hand and the goats on his left. People in his day knew right away that the goats were in trouble because the right hand is the hand of honor. The king will say to those at his right, come you who are, are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. And then Jesus goes through a list of all the things that these people have done. And they said, I don't remember doing that for you, Jesus. And Jesus said, as much as you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me. And then the people who are referred to as goats, they're like, well, we didn't ever have an opportunity to do that to you. So I'm not sure this is fair. You're holding us responsible. And Jesus says, as much as you did not do it, to the least of these, you have not done it unto me. For so many of the parts of this text, there are parts that have been popularized, and that's a good thing, but it's a bad thing in the sense that sometimes the popular interpretations, they overshadow the rest of the meaning that's there. This is a lifetime of example of studying scripture. You just, you, you might say, I've read that before. What I would say to you, keep reading the Holy Spirit can show you something that's brand new. This prophetic insight is significant because it reminds us that at the end of the world, when it's all said and done, when this world is no more and every person that's ever lived is standing before Christ and there's a judgment to be made, there is a separation. Not everybody gets to heaven. It is forever. There are no second chances. There's a lot of second chances in this life, but once this life is over, there's no second chance there. Jesus in this teaching is reminding us that we have a choice. It's our decision, ultimately, at the end of the day, whether or not we are counted as sheep or a goat. And the last one, this is hard for us, especially the age of the world that we live in. For some people, it's the reason why they don't like the teachings of Christianity is that heaven is exclusive. It's it's exclusive. When Jesus stood before the world and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but my me, he was making a statement that he is the only way. I like that Jesus pulls in the imagery of the farm animals. This is powerful for us. Because in Jesus' day, a farm animal was not a pet. Come on. They were made for eating. Praise the Lord. Goats and sheep alike. The sheep, yes, they could provide wool. Yes, the goat could provide milk. But at the end of the day, their greatest contribution, it required them to be all in. You tracking with me? I remember being in Niger, Africa in 2009 on a missions trip and, and we were headed to a dinner one of the nights. It was a, a pastor's conference and a team of us were there, were doing teaching and training and then we were also doing open air evangelism in some of these villages that were, had never heard Christ preach. It was a powerful experience and one of the nights to honor the people that had came, they made a great feast and part of the feast was that they prepared a goat 
the whole goat, the entire goat. It's a male goat, the entire goat. I'm just saying, the whole goat. And you walk through this line, and, 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 and the person who we went with on this trip said, when you go, depending who they perceive you to be, de- determines what portion of the goat they put on your plate. And there's certain parts of the goat that you would think is a dishonor, but that's the most honorable thing that they could give to you. It's a male goat. I have never prayed so hard to be dishonored in my entire life. Because they say, you got to eat what they put on your plate. See, I mean, in that sense, if you don't eat what they put, right, it's trouble. It's trouble. In the name of Jesus, right? We're just going through that line. Thank the Lord. I don't know what I got, but I didn't get what I didn't want to get. Never been so happy. Goats and sheep. They were a means of sustaining human life. And I think the reason why Jesus inserts this in a place where it seems like it doesn't belong because he's talking about kings and kingdoms and citizenship is because just like the other two, the parables that came before and now the prophetic insight that we're in now, he's trying to help us to understand the culture of the family of God. And the culture of the family of God is that you live your life in service to others is that you exist for the purpose of sustaining other people. The sheep and the goat in Jesus' day never had a sense that it was about them. Now the goats did a little bit, and that's why they're on the left, because in Jesus' day they understood the nature of these two animals. I was doing some research this week, and I came across some teaching that a shepherd was, 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 was giving to try to help people understand if they were going to be sheep herders or, or goat herders. And he said, let me help you understand one of these. If you're, going to, if you're going to have sheep, then much of what you do is protecting the sheep from the environment that they're in. But if you're going to have goats, all right, I'm on the right or the left. Let's pretend I did the sheep thing over here. Now I'm on the left side, right? If, if you do the goats that much of your time is going to be spent protecting your environment from the goats. Because the goats are rebellious. The goats have a mind of their own. The goats do what the goat wants to do. They ultimately end up serving the same purpose of the sheep. They just go reluctantly. And Jesus is saying that that sentiment, it offends the father. You got to be willing to live your life in service to people around you. I'm not talking about self-neglect. I'm not teaching about self-neglect. We talk and teach about self-care. We're not talking about not taking care of yourself. But what we're saying is there's a difference between self-centeredness and selfishness and self-neglect. And through the wisdom of God's word and through the wisdom of the council of communities that we're part of, we understand the difference between the two. Listen to Matthew 20, 28. It says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Acts 20, 35 says, And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out 
only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. All of these verses are telling us the same thing. Live the life of the sheep that lives in service to other people. For some of you, that's kept you from making a vow of devotion to Christ. For others of you, you've made a vow of devotion to Christ. You're on your way to heaven. You're going to be a part of that banquet that's going to last for an eternity. But this idea of selfishness and self-centeredness is still all too present in your life. Now, you're going to get a pass because I'm going to shift up how we're going to respond to this one. Some of you are like, praise God. That's your first answer prayer in your entire life. I didn't have to stand. But this is the way I want to finish up our last response as the worship team comes. Because in each one of these, we've been saying the same thing, that for some people, this has kept them from making a vow of devotion to Christ, but for other people, you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, but you know that sentiment is still too much a part of who you are, and this idea that how it offends God, and, and, and you, you want to live differently. But for some of you, you haven't made a vow of devotion to Christ. It could be that for some of you, You've been going through the motions just like I did for much of my life, growing up in a Christian home, playing the part, but on the inside, never yielding my heart to Christ. And so what we're going to do in just a minute is we're going to stand and we're going to worship together. And then when I come back up, there's going to be a moment at the end of that song where I'm just going to have everybody close their eyes. And if you're here tonight and you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, in that moment, I'm just going to ask you to slip up your hand. And we just want to pray with you tonight. We're not going to ask you to do anything else. We're not going to ask you to go into some room or fill out some card. This moment's just between you and the Father. And if you're here and that's you, then you know who you are because you feel something tugging on your heart. And it might be that you're here from out of town and you thought you were here for turkey and sweet potato pie. But God had plans for you to bring you to a moment just like this, to set your life in a completely different direction, not just for this life here, but for all eternity. Stand with me. Father, I pray for all of us here tonight, for those that have already stood, for those that wanted to and didn't, God, for even now the ones that feel something tugging hard in their heart because they know that as they look back over to the story of their life, they've never made a vow of devotion to Christ. And Matthew 25 has become all too real to them because they know that there is a future, there is a purpose, there is a calling, not just for this life, but for all eternity. And they want to make sure that they're on the right hand. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, I pray that your spirit and your presence would minister to every person in a real way. For the person that's here tonight and we haven't even talked about what they're going through, Father, we know that you see the cry of their heart. And I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit in this room would touch their heart in such a deep and a personal way that healing would come. 
Jesus' name. Come on, let's worship together.